The reading is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, beginning at verse 13, and you can find it on page 966 in the Pew Bible. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he'd learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask that you would help us understand more about the significance of the events following Jesus' birth and to live in the light of this. Amen. The uh, events recorded in the part of Matthew's Gospel that we've just heard read to us are, I think, pretty familiar. But I wonder when the last time was that you actually reflected on those events. Now, I suspect there is someone here who will say, well, I did so just before Christmas when I was reading that passage, and that's fine, but I wonder when you last heard a sermon about these events. We don't often hear sermons about them, and I suspect that the reason for that is that this passage contains no great statements about the truth of Jesus, no calls to faith. No statements about how we should live our lives or guidance for our lives or calls to repentance. On its face, it appears simply to be an interesting account of how it was that Jesus moved from Bethlehem ultimately to Nazareth. But there's more to it than that. Uh, We can learn quite a lot from what Matthew says about God's control over events and about uh, the way he unfolded his purposes, put into practice his plans. And along the way, 
we can learn more about how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. The basic facts are simple. Following the visit of the Magi, uh, in a dream, Joseph was warned that Herod, King Herod, the king of Judea, wanted to kill Jesus, and he was told to flee to Egypt. It was a pretty obvious place to flee to. The border was only 75 miles south of Bethlehem, and there was a large Egyptian community in Egypt, particularly in the Nile Delta region. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, Herod had realized that the Magi had let him down, and he determined to kill the boys under the age of two, two and under, in Bethlehem. Incidentally, some people conclude from that that two years had passed since Jesus' birth, but that's actually faulty logic. Herod doubtless reasoned backwards and, and calculated backwards to the time when the Magi told him they'd first seen the star, and that was probably a good deal of time before Jesus' birth. And in any event, Herod wasn't going to take any risks And so the boys were killed. That incident isn't mentioned in any secular source. And as a result, some people worry that Matthew made it up. But there really isn't a need for concern. Uh, Those were violent times. Bethlehem was a small place. Probably no more than, what, ten or so boys were killed And that wouldn't have registered particularly, especially in the light of Herod's other crimes. You see, we're talking about an insecure despot. We're talking about the man who around this time, or within a couple of years beforehand, had arranged the murder of three of his own sons because he believed they were plotting against him. We're talking about the man who, on his deathbed in Jericho, ordered that a group of Jewish notables should be assembled so that upon him dying, they too could be murdered, and thus there'd be lamentation throughout the land. The order to kill the children in Bethlehem was entirely in keeping with his character, Now, of course, we don't know how long Jesus uh, and his parents were in uh, Egypt. Probably no more than two maximum years, one or two years, probably less. What we do know is Herod very soon died. And again, in a dream, Joseph was instructed to go back to the land of Israel. He doubtless expected that when he got there, he would find Herod's son, Herod Antipas, uh, reigning. That's what everybody had expected. However, capricious to the last, Herod the Great had changed his will while he was dying. And he had left uh, Herod Antipas only Galilee and Perea. He'd appointed one of his other sons, Archelaus, to be an ethnarch king, effectively, over Judea, Samaria, and Idumea. And that was bad news, because Archelaus was as savage as his father. In fact, following his accession, uh, there were protests in Jerusalem, and Archelaus ordered his soldiers to attack the protesters. 
And according to the near-contemporary Jewish historian Josephus, over 3,000 people were killed. And so finding Archelaus on the throne was doubtless a rather unwelcome development from Joseph's point of view. And we're told that having been again warned in a dream, he headed up to Nazareth in Galilee, in other words, in the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas, not Archelaus, and the family settled down there. Those are the basic facts. What can we learn from them? Well, the first point to note is that in this passage, we're told that God intervened three times by way of dreams. On two occasions to warn Joseph, and on one occasion to reassure him, and on at least two, probably all three occasions, to direct him. You see, on the surface, in human terms, Jesus was at risk, but God was protecting him. I once heard a sermon in which the preacher said that God took a risk in sending Jesus into the world because so much could have happened, so much could have gone wrong. But, but that's not right. God transcends time. And the concept of risk in the sense of facing an, un, an uncertain future does not apply to God. God could protect Jesus, and this passage says that he did so. Uh, You may remember that when Jesus was in front of Pilate, Pilate said to him, don't you realize I have power either to free you or crucify you? It must have seemed self-evident to Pilate, but Jesus replied, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And exactly the same was true of Herod the Great and Archelaus, and indeed Herod Antipas, with this important difference. In accordance with God's will, Jesus was handed over to Pilate, but that wasn't his will in relation to the Herodians. Again, you may remember this from Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. That's what happened when Herod the Great opposed God. So, God was in control. He was fulfilling, he was, I'm sorry, God was in control and he was protecting Jesus. And moreover, he was fulfilling his purposes in Jesus. Now, we've thought about that about, thought a lot, I'm getting tongue-tied, aren't I? Sorry. We've thought a lot about that over Christmas. We've heard how the Old Testament prophets revealed that God would send a saviour as a child, and that child was Jesus. That much is clear. I'm not going to say anything more about it. 
But we do need to think about the three specific fulfillments of the Old Testament that Matthew talks about in this passage. Because these three fulfillments are complex. None of them is a simple case where there is a predictive prophecy that was then fulfilled. In other words, in no case is there an Old Testament prophecy that an event would happen and then it did happen. Let's take them one by one. The first one's in verse 15. And so was fulfilled what the Lord said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. That comes from Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. It's actually only part of that verse. The full quote is this. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now you'll immediately recognize that is not a predictive prophecy. God is reminding the Israelites of their history and his role in it. He's reminding them about the Exodus. Then take the second fulfillment, that's verse 17. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. That's Jeremiah 31, 15. And it's a prophecy about the mourning of the Israelites. But it's a prophecy about their mourning on account of going into exile in Babylon in the 6th century BC. It's not a prophecy about the coming Messiah. And the third fulfillment is even more puzzling. That's in verse 23. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, you may notice there's no quote from the Old Testament there. And there's a good reason for that. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it state that the Messiah will be a Nazarene. It's confusing, isn't it? What's going on? To understand what Matthew is saying, it's worth thinking about three points. First of all, When New Testament writers want to draw attention to something in the Old Testament, they often quote one or two phrases as a way of reminding people about the entire passage in which those two or three phrases, or however many it is, appears. That's point one. Point two. Old Testament events requirements, rituals, and other things often point towards Jesus and Jesus' ministry. A really good example of that is the entire Old Testament sacrificial system, which, as the book of Hebrews indicates, points forward to Jesus' sacrifice of himself. And that links to the third point, Because when Old Testament things point forward in that way, the New Testament refers to them as having been fulfilled in Jesus, whether or not a predictive prophecy is involved. And a good example of that 
is what Jesus said at the start of the Last Supper. Do you remember he said that he had looked forward to eating the Last Supper with his disciples because he said, I will not eat the Passover again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. But the Passover meal wasn't a predictive prophecy. It was a memorial of the Exodus. Nonetheless, it pointed forward to Jesus, and so Jesus said it was fulfilled in him. Those are the three points. Now, bear those in mind, and let's go back to the three fulfillments mentioned by Matthew. Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. God there refers to the Israelite people as his son, and reminds them that he had rescued them from Egypt. Hosea then goes on immediately to point out that despite being rescued, the Israelite people had rejected God, and he says that in consequence of that, they will go back into captivity. But that's not the end of the prophecy. Hosea then goes on to say, nonetheless, in due course, God will have compassion on his people. As Hosea puts it, uh, he will roar like a lion and draw his people back to him. God's love will triumph over their sin and they will return from exile. Now, Matthew is drawing our attention to all of that. What he's saying is that new rescue prophesied by Hosea is being achieved through Jesus. And just as the first rescue commenced with God calling his Israelite people, his metaphorical son, out of Egypt... So the new rescue commenced with God calling Jesus, his ontological son, out of Egypt. The first rescue pointed to and was fulfilled through the second rescue. And there's there's more to it than that. The New Testament indicates that, in a sense, Jesus is the true Israel. And events in his life illustrate that. The Israelite people were called out of Egypt. Jesus was called out of Egypt. The Israelite people spent 40 years in the desert on account of their sin. Jesus spent 40 days in the desert demonstrating his obedience to God. The Israelite people are referred to as the God's vine or his vineyard, but they produced bad grapes. Look at Isaiah chapter 5. Jesus is the true vine. I haven't got time to go into that in detail, but I hope you get the gist of the point. We must move on. We must move on to the Jeremiah prophecy, Jeremiah 31.15. Now, the key thing to note about this is the verse quoted by Matthew again comes in the context of a passage uh, in which uh, we're told that owing to God's love, the exile will not be the end of the story as regards God's people. And once again, those people are referred to as God's son. 
And Jeremiah imagines Rachel. That's Rachel, the wife of the patriarch Jacob, the uh, mother of Joseph and Benjamin. Jacob, uh, sorry, uh, Jeremiah imagines Rachel weeping as the Israelite people go into exile. But no sooner has he done that than he says this, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. Why? Well, he says, there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. You see, the tears of Rachel lead immediately to a prophecy of salvation and joy. And Jeremiah says that there are two reasons, two ways in which that's to be fulfilled. First of all, he talks about the physical return of the Israelites from um, captivity uh, in in, uh, Babylon, he's thinking about. But then, in a very well-known passage, just a few verses later on, he goes on to speak of a greater salvation from God. This is Jeremiah 31, 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And Matthew recognised that that pointed forward to Jesus. You see, Rachel's tears pointed forward to a great salvation. And those tears were reflected in the tears of the people of Bethlehem as that salvation was inaugurated. The, The tears, the mourning was coming to an end. God's son, Jesus, had escaped into Egypt. So the first two fulfillments mentioned by Matthew are broadly about the same thing. The third, though, is somewhat different. That's the prophecy that he would be called a Nazarene. There are two things that together explain that. First of all, for some unknown reason, Nazareth was not well regarded in the time of Jesus. Uh, You may remember that the Apostle Philip, having met Jesus, enthused to his brother Nathaniel that he had found Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. And he received the withering put-down, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then many years later, the Jewish authorities disparagingly referred to the Christians as the Nazarene sect. So calling someone a Nazarene was not a compliment. In fact, it was a a, a term of contempt. It's a bit like saying somebody's uh, an ignorant bumpkin. Now keep that in mind. Go back to what Matthew says. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. Note, he doesn't attribute anything to a specific prophet. He refers to prophets, plural. What could he have had in mind? Well, I'd suggest in the light of the first point that what he had in mind was all of those prophecies 
that the Messiah would be held in contempt. He would be despised and rejected. Take a look at Isaiah 49, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. Take a look at those afterwards if you would like to see more about that. And you see, Matthew recognised that by moving to Nazareth, Joseph had unintentionally inaugurated the fulfilment of those prophecies. Jesus would be called a Nazarene both metaphorically and literally. We need to pull back from the detail. What Matthew is telling us in this passage is that God was in control and was working out his purposes in Jesus. And there was absolutely nothing that Herod the Great, Archelaus, or anyone else could do to derail those plans of God. In fact, contrary to their own intentions, what they had done fitted in with God's plans. But those plans did not contemplate a smooth path for God's Messiah. And the outworking of them in the life of Jesus involved threats, flight, and ultimately living in a despised place. And of course, subsequently, much suffering. You see, on the surface, uh, things did not look good for Jesus in those first few months of his life. In fact, there were many in his age, including incidentally Herod the Great, who would have looked out on the world and seen it as a very uncertain, insecure, threatening, even scary place. But nothing had gone wrong. God was still in control. And his plans were unfolding, plans that would ultimately lead to the triumph of the resurrection. And we need to make those truths part of the bedrock of our lives. Because as we go into 2022, I suspect to many of us, the world still looks an uncertain, insecure, threatening and scary place. But it doesn't look that way to God. God is in control. Furthermore, just as God oversaw Jesus' life, so he oversees the lives of all those who are united with Jesus through faith. And therefore, we don't need to fear anything. In a very famous passage at the end of Romans, Paul wrote this, end of Romans 8 rather. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Fear not. That's the basic message of this passage. Amen.